Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I am delighted to have as my return guest, Dave Davies, co-author and partner in crime of Making Channel Sales Work. And Dave also acts as a fractional CRO in the first zero to five years for scale-up technology companies, helping them to become corporate, but not stay corporate. So Dave, welcome. Marcus, thank you for having me today. Today, I really want to explore um, how you see sales evolving and how leadership needs to evolve, uh, how the channel is going to play its part. And I'd also like to explore a thesis that you have and I share, which is that actually um, sales will probably start taking some nice, gentle, uh, nostalgic steps backwards if it's going to see its, uh, it improve in terms of its stature and performance. So Dave, over to you. 90 seconds on your position today. In your inevitable style, you've chosen three of the easiest questions for us to answer in the shortest amount of time. So yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. And um, yeah, it's a little bit about me. I've been working in tech now since, well, they invented it. I was selling desktop PCs when they first started putting them on desktops and been in tech ever since. Most of my background, as you already know, Marcus, is working with smaller organizations, startup organizations, helping them to you know, grow and scale. I always call myself a zero to five guy because where I work best is in their first zero to five years, putting in yeah, the right strategy in place, getting the right structure, starting to staff that with the right people for that particular organization. But more than that, staffing it for the right the right people for the audience that they're selling to. So I think a lot of people miss out on, right? Is your salespeople should be a good reflection of the audience that you're trying to work with. Spend a lot of time putting systems in place. Systems splits in two ways, one of which is putting the right technologies in place for that business. Sometimes avoiding them spending, you know, thousand pounds of rep just to make a phone call. And systems in terms of I'm a massive fan of systemizing each step of our sales process by sitting down, documenting it templating it, working out what is it that we're doing at each step and each stage, what we're saying, how we're saying it, and what outcomes are we driving for our customer. And you know, clear care on, you know, is this conversation that we've designed to have with our customers of value to them? Because if we drive that value to them, they're much more likely to derive value from the call and continue to work with us. And I think you've touched on something that's so critical. If you don't begin with where the customer intends to get to, and uh, you tr- don't meet them where they are today, you'll create friction. You'll create the conditions for them to build obstacles and for you to end up either in an adversarial or being an accomplice in perpetrating what doesn't work. And I, I think there are many types of organization that are sucking on the teeth of this, training being one of them consultancy being another. So many of the sales tech and martech technologies are all sapping revenue and resource and time and attention away from the real problem, which is that most sales organizations don't give a damn about the customer. The tech doesn't create value. You can put a great call cadence system in place, but that doesn't create value for your customer. It just creates ease for your salespeople and, frankly, laziness quite often in your salespeople because don't have, you're actually creating an environment where they don't have to think. They just have to dial this connect and, 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 and converse model, I think is, is fundamentally wrong because none of it seems to be derived off the back of clarity of audience, 
you know, the challenges that they're facing in their world, the jobs that they need to get done and the value they get. It's high. I'm peddling some shit. Do you want it? That's the, where I, I have a real beef with how training and coaching are currently either implemented or avoided because the emphasis is on the technique and the tactic. Right. It's not around the consequence, the environment, the context, because the, the moment the customer moves from prospect and buyer to customer, they've now bought that risk. And if you have not created the conditions to offset that fear of anticipated buyer's remorse, fear, regret, blame, judgment, career-stopping move, and you turn up as a seller, and to to steal your turn of phrase, I'm giving you credit the once, if you see the prospect as a £25,000 commission check, that's not really you turning up with the customer's best interests at heart. No, or your own, actually, in reality. Or your own. There's no mutuality in it. It's just... You see pound sites, like I always imagine this cartoon, you see salespeople, in, especially when you get an inbound call and, and you answer and you can see the eyes popping out going with, with dollar signs in it. It's so, yeah, the American well, kind of cartoon. So. There was a timeshare company that I was uh, dabbling with at one point. And the moment I heard this, I decided that we weren't really culturally well matched. Mm-hmm. They were training their people to imagine a 50 pound note nailed to the prospect's head. And it was their job to grab it off their head and rip it out. And that was how they were training their people. Well, that's... So as Forgive me, this is a little broad statement. But isn't that how 97% of sales salespeople are taught or sales trainers teach? Is imagine your customer's money and then go get it. I, I was coaching one of my salespeople yesterday. And what's interesting is his behavior has shifted. So he is totally focused on showing up with uh, intense curiosity to see if he can help, if he's the right person to help. If not, Mm. being willing to refer on his closest competitor. The problem is the language he still uses is that of someone who grew up in an SDR kind of function, that boiler room, whereas if it's not going to close this month, forget it and move on. Right. Discount it or dump it. Exactly. And so the way he was describing what he was going to do next and just had to pare it back so he heard what he said. And that's incredibly powerful. And that kind of in-the-moment coaching is what I believe more businesses need to implement. But the problem is, because the managers don't think beyond making their quota, and they're under that kind of pressure, they're not really thinking as the customer and the context in which their salespeople are selling into, then they can't coach that. Most managers, you you, know, you and I both know this when we work with them, is that yeah, the position is a player manager. Now, one of two things are true. Either the organization's placed them as a player manager, or they can't. Biggest struggle I had in my early career as a manager, moving from being a good salesman. I don't know what great looks like these days, but I certainly was good at what I did. Moved into management because I had some, so it showed some leadership capabilities. But of course, my ego, the young you know, 23-year-old stupid Dave Davies, couldn't let go. I felt that I needed the wins all the time. So, you know, it was either playing the big gun, the, you know, or, or running my own deals, running a team and operating like a lone wolf. It's frightening. So many of them are still today, and I'm yeah, still some that I'm working, working them out of this concept of player manager so that 80% of your focus isn't spent on 
showing that you can win bigger deals than your team and spending 80% of your time helping your team win bigger deals by focusing on coaching. Everybody talks about coaching being an art, right? And you and I could go out in the next hour and get a certificate from a school nobody's ever heard of and wave it at people and say, look, I'm a qualified coach. Coaching's easy, right? It's simple. It's not easy because you've got to keep your ego out of it. It's not about you being the hero coach. And that's where the hero manager and the hero closer has a tendency to end up when they're coaching. But that's what I mean. It's easy, right? It's, it's easy if you just shut up and listen and get people talking and get people sharing with you what they're experiencing, what they're seeing, where they're heading, where they're going. Of course, most people overcomplicate it by sitting there doing this, this death march through your pipeline. So when's this coming in? When's this coming? That's not coaching, right? At best, that's bean counting. You might as well put an accountant in the room. That's you. At that level, the manager's little more than the accountant's uh, lackey anyway. Of course. At some point, a number has to go up and it's their job to try and calculate a a fictional number based on the pressure they can put on their people. If we look at the minimum technology stack that a viable modern sales organization really needs, what would that look like? If we go minimum viable, then it depends on what size and shape they're at, right? I assert that they they have a CRM system up front. I remember I'm wrapping one in and loading it up in 27 five and a quarter inch discs. So I've never lived a sales role and I never built a business without a CRM system in place. The CRM system in place, I think modern age, LinkedIn premium will do you. Navigator is a sledgehammer to crack a nut in most circumstances. I'm not saying it doesn't have its place or value, but in most circumstances, they buy it and then don't know how to use it. And then, of course, yeah, the key kit is, uh, is a telephone. Because where everybody's talking about the sales evolution, but let's focus in on the sales revolution for a second. Let's revolve back to our fundamental role and responsibility in sales is to talk to people, understand their problems. And then perhaps if we're lucky, get to position something that we do, you know, in the gap between where they are and where they want to be that solves that problem. So that's all you need. All this other stuff has its place, I'm sure, and has its value, but sitting around the other day working out what the tech stack for a typical corporate salesperson is. And it works out to be about £2,000 a month. It's a lot of money. It's £2,000 a month to all the different little bits of technology that some companies I've, I've talked to have put in place just for their salespeople to not make a phone call. <laughs> Frightening, right? Nobody's talking to anybody. They're sitting there gar- on the garbage run on LinkedIn waiting for somebody's PA to accidentally misread it and think it wasn't a sales um, outrage. If indeed it was ever read, yeah, they get hijacked yeah, with a bag over the head and dragged off to a demo where they're held hostage and waterboarded with technology that they never needed or never wanted or, frankly, didn't even get to contextualize at the start of the demo. What problem does this actually solve? Yeah, And by the way, Mr. Salesperson, what do you actually know about my organization? I love when I change the name of my company to Sander Training by Dave Davies because every email I get now is, we've been working with Sander Training by Dave Davies for some time. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just yeah. noise and garbage. And it gets in the way of people talking to people and it gets and, it, and it's increasing. The biggest problem we, we've tried to solve in sales for as long as I've been in it, as long as you've been in it, is how people perceive us. Yeah, we, it's certainly a handicap in most cases. 
you know, I don't get invited to dinner parties often, but when people ask me what I do as I'm an account manager um, or anything else, it doesn't sound like I'm in sales. It's not true. I'm, I'm proud to call myself a salesperson, but I sit around watching what other people do and it's a 90-minute download on what they do. And I go, so you're in sales then? And they don't talk to me for the rest of the party. Um, but <laughs> what we're doing today with all of this tech, in my opinion, is just reinforcing the view, reinforcing the buyer's attitude which is one of, I don't need salespeople and I don't want to talk to salespeople. I don't, they're in my way. They're creating friction in my buying process and I want well, to avoid them. There's an apocryphal story on this from Tony right. Hughes and he was working with a company selling into pharmacies. And there were two regions that were stand out above the rest. And when they looked and interrogate which reps were on them, it turned out no reps were on them. <laughs> which caused a little bit of a ripple. And so then they went to interview these pharmacists and they said, well, what value do salespeople offer? And they said, none. Oh, no, they give us discounts. Ah. So not only do they uh, act as deal prevention officers, but they give away your margin as well and make it more expensive for you to sell and uh, have to work harder to stand still because they're giving away profit. So actually they're turning up, not bringing value, bringing devalue yeah so here's how proud we are of our organization i'll lead with a 20 percent discount and we'll negotiate it down to 50 so they just simply devalue the proposition and devalue themselves and devalue the relationship and destroy this industry that and that's the problem because that's the antithesis of what sales is about 100 sales is about bringing value where there wasn't value before or where value is being lost and it's about being timely. It's about being relevant. It's about serving the needs of others. But the way things are with the measurements, the compensation scheme, the culture from above. Well, from above, from from above, above. Yeah, and above, above. Above, above. Because unfortunately, from, you sit in a, vest, a vested organization and this stuff is trickling down from above, above. It's not in the organization. It's in the organization that's put the investment in that said, show me the money. Uh, absolutely. Now, this is going to be really um, quite scary in my book because I'm seeing interest rates spike. And I remember when my parents first bought their house in 1979, interest rates were 5%. A year later, they were 17%. Mm-hmm. Many organizations that have taken venture and private equity money are saddled with debt. Yeah. And they're not making And bereft of customers because, you know, they've got cash. I won't work with organ. I don't, I don't, I don't have a fundamental issue with people taking investment. I get it. And I get why they do it sometimes. But I won't work, work with organizations that aren't willing to put an organic growth strategy in place. If you can't grow a business off the back of the investment, and it should be, it's a bridging loan, right? It's yeah. not a lifestyle. I know one particular organization in Reading who are now on their ninth round of, of investment and still and still don't have any customers. And people keep investing in it because at some point, you know, they're going to work out how to sell. Of course, the owner's ego is it will come. If we build it, it will come. Yeah, I've seen that happen twice. Yeah, one of those years. was Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner the yeah. other time. <laughs> <laughs> There's one organization that appears to have built great product and their engineers haven't managed to put people off. Good. That's pretty rare though, right? Yeah, but that's about it. Mm. But therein, as I said, therein lies the problem. Yeah, the problem is above, above. It's not always above. 
it permeates to above and then mm-hmm. below that to the management layer. And so one of the big areas that I think really needs work is this whole concept, which no one is talking about, about management enablement. They're talking about management training right. and sales enablement, but no one mm-hmm. talks about management enablement. No, of course. And that's the, that's the most pivotal area that you're going to get. Uh, that, that's the biggest lever with the most amount of clout. They're the ones who have the least amount of spend on them because of basically dinosaurs our age saying, well, why the hell are we hiring them then? I love that concept. Yeah, I was very lucky to work in an organization. I think it were invested through the stack, through leadership, through management and through sales, but it's pretty rare. But most of what the sales enablement team did that we, you know, I helped to forge and found in that organization were very, very focused on enabling me as a manager to be a, a, a you know, and as the most effective coach I could. It was Moneyball. It was, you know, here all the, here's what's happening with each of your individuals. Here's how they're playing. Here's where they're playing, you know, the right game, the right moves. Here's where they're playing the wrong moves. Here's where you need to be coaching and developing them. So I've been quite lucky that I've been in You've really heard the phrase, but I've been in a management-enabled space. And when you do that, you see significant returns. But most well, managers won't have a, a relationship with sales enablement because, of course, they bought the T-shirt that says sales disablement and they bought the myth that sales enablement team's job is to well, make life difficult, which it really isn't. <laughs> yeah, they're the brains that are looking at the machine and working out what's happening in the machine and pointing you and then your, your people by association they're in the right direction. They're a sat-nav for success if you allow them to be. But most people won't work well with the sales enablement team because they will see it again a bit like marketing as a separate function over there that's in my way, get out of my way. It's really interesting, though, that um, the evidence is clear, but the results from doing things the way you've always done them are disappointing. That's true in so many organizations, isn't it? So what is it that needs to, actually a better question, where is the point where you can create an intellectual shortcut for the investors and the leadership team so that they see the value of enabling the management layer? That is an interesting question. I'm assuming, again, it goes back to our ability to present the mechanics of our operation and starts to share with the investors, uh, which most don't, right? Yeah. yeah. What we've worked out. Here's what we've worked. Here's why we were investment ready. Here's why we're investable. Here's what we've worked out. We've worked out who we who who we serve, and uh, we've worked out what we serve, and we've worked out, you know, how they buy, and what moves do our buyers go through to find us, forage around in our propositions, you know, and eventually engage and 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 and, and talk to us. So by that, then when we've worked out, this is one of my standing rules now, where we've worked out how our buyers buy, then in reality, rather than me bringing, here's a one I made earlier, sales process, which you know, most sales trainers, most sales coaches and consultants do, is we actually get to architect our sales motions as a reflection of what we've, we've tested and proven is our buyer model. And that's done typically for our existing clients or by finding some friendlies who will help us to understand if you were going to buy what we do, what motions would you go through? How would you, as an organization, buy what we do? Once I've got that bit in place, so I know who I'm serving, you know, what they're about, what jobs they need to get done, what problems they're experiencing, what possibilities they perhaps envisage for the future, 
and I work out what we sell and what our value proposition is, how we position it effectively, how we bring value and where we bring value in the buyer's you know, motions and how we move the salespeople to be you know, gracefully aligned to them, then I can start to work out who we are. If I work out who we are, like what I mean by that is who, what are the right people for my organization to engage in this model that we've built and our client or a potential client and you know, get them to help me to define what the job profile looks like for that particular organization, then we've started okay. got some kind of you know, presentable machine, right? This is absolutely on the money. And certainly I subscribe to 100% what you're saying. My question to you is undoubtedly, if you don't have patient capital and patient leadership, that story ain't going to wash because they're looking at you as a fractional CRO as a VP of sales who's going to mm. come in and uh, sprinkle magic dust and turn things around fast. Um, and that's not the role of the CRO. So how do you get past, how do you find the common ground between where you are and where they are and where they want to be so that you can bridge that resistance and help them make the leap? Yeah. So I think we're all in the education business, aren't we? Yeah, that's primarily our function and role. And yeah, no CRO worth his salt who couldn't influence investors to understand the journey that he's about to take this business on before he joins has the right to be in the role. Uh, if you're going into an organization who will not give you access to the investor community so that you can express to them who you are, how you are, and what it is you believe that you're bringing to the table, then frankly, don't get involved because the CEO is a conduit for messages from the board, as are most of the other CXOs. And so you need to know, this goes back to Zanzu, right? Know your foe, know your foe, know your foe. Having a great relationship with the CEO, if he's got somebody else, eight other people with their size tens up his ass every five minutes, ain't going to wash. You need to know your foe. And if the person that you're trying to serve within, you know, in the internal organization, frankly, is an external party, then you have the right, I think, before you take the role. And this is where the, the CRO's tenure, I think, is, is so limited uh, in the modern world because they're not talking to the ultimate decision maker. They're talking to a management level individual who sat on somebody else's money expecting a return. So go and help the investors understand what you bring. And you know, by the way, if that's not a good fit for them, then the organization is not going to be a good fit for you. And nobody wants another A4 sheet of paper to cover off the jobs they've had in the last five years. <laughs> you know, the 18-month CROs, there are too many of them. And I believe, fundamentally believe, that they're not having the right conversation, that they're taking the role because it's waived at a quarter of a million and step into the role. And the first thing they do is spend all their time telling people they're the CRO of a new company without working out what's actually going wrong. Because I don't remember ever being ever being hired, I haven't been hired that many times for obvious reasons, but I don't ever remember being hired into a role where I didn't fundamentally understand what the problem was. And I can't work out what the problem was if somebody doesn't know it. I need to be talking to the people who've got ambition and expectation for me and expectations of me. And th this, I think, really then speaks to another area where investors get the jitters and you don't end up with customers if you don't have good market fit. And if you can't, because they're, they're the both sides of the coin, you need to understand where the customer wants to get to, where they are, what that gap looks like, where the intersection points that you can meet them at 
and that would feel natural and timely and helpful and contextually relevant. And that takes thought. It takes uh, intelligent planning. It takes reflection. It takes speaking to actual customers. And I don't think many people are willing or even, first of all, they don't know. That's ignorance. That's the most forgivable of all the deadly sins. But ego is a huge problem. Not being willing to ask for help. It's an insanity in this day and age where everything is so tightly connected and no individual vendor is the solution to a customer's problem. Yeah. You're one moving part in a little machine in part of a big machine, which is part of an entire ecosystem. And if you don't learn to play nicely with strangers, even your competitors, then you can't possibly stay relevant to your customer. No, you can't. And of course, most, most, most salespeople go searching for this magical, mythical budget thing because they believe in some ridiculous way that there are line item in there or actually there's a particularly carved out piece of budget for a CRM, which is actually part of a bigger budget and a bigger movement. And there is a, a portion of money which you might have some share in. But like you said, most people still today, most organizations, ego pervades. They are the solution to a problem, but they don't understand what the problem is. And the problem is often bigger than them, broader than them. And the organizations, and he's going all the way back to the 70s. You know, some of the big tech firms back there were very, very good at partnering and very, very good at finding you know, the three things that, that, that often you need to be you know, to successfully launch a tech um, company. The three I's, which is you need inventors, you need investors, and you need inspectors. And typically you get the two, but you rarely, if ever, get the, the third one. And the inspector's job is to go out and work out if there's a bloody market for the mad inventor's heavily invested idea. Most don't do that, do they? They do a little bit of market research, right? I spoke to a mate who said it sounded like a good idea. It's not market research. But that's how, that's how most companies get started or three people collude over beer. And by the end of the night, half the businesses I set up work this way, by the end of the night, by the eighth pint of Stella, we've registered the company and we're starting Monday. Enough money in our pocket to go into the office. Couldn't actually afford the keys to an office. But yeah, that's how most of these things started. We got very good, I think. I was doing it the other day. How much money were we putting in? Who's actually owning the the proposition, the the invention of of itself, the invention itself? And who's going to go and prove that this has has a marketplace? That somebody is actually going to put their hand up and go, that's a million pound idea. How long is it going to take? Well, should be ready in 12 months. Great. Come find me. Oh, dear. Not one of the Muppets falling out of their chair? No, um, cat fighting. <laughs> You're on the sales floor then. <laughs> we might leave that in. <laughs> um, so you could hear that. Good. It's not just me. <laughs> Excellent. So if we look at the whole idea of alliances, partnering, strategic alliances. Certainly, that's the direction I'm headed with all the companies that I'm working with. But that takes time. You, you know, you, you're going to see some quick, quick wins by tidying up the pipeline and selling into the ecosystem. And you'll build real resilience in the pipeline by prospecting two, three, four quarters out. So you're building future right. pipeline. Mm-hmm. but the quickest way to scale is selling hot 
through a handful of what we coined uh, special forces partners, where they are already selling hot into your cold market. So let's explore that for a while, because um, I'd love your thoughts in terms of how you see partnering evolving. Well, definitely might be seen to have evolved, but I do think it's still, to your point, I'm falling in love with this concept of alliances, right? makes sense to me. I'm I'm a big Star Wars fan. Yeah, and being part of the Rebel Alliance always will appeal to me. But I think that's what we're talking about here. There is this 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 opportunity to start to forge this Rebel Alliance of specialists who are willing to work together on solving the bigger problems, the harder problems, you know, the larger problems that they face when they tackle an enterprise. I can't remember who did it. I'm sure it's a HubSpot survey. But eight out of ten um, opportunities in the pipeline end up with no sale. Like nobody won. Nobody got the business. Nowhere. And I think yeah, it's that's the status quo. A little bit the status quo. A little bit down to you know personal risk from a bias perspective, and it's a little bit down to being too understanding what your specialization is. Your designation in the marketplace is a great thing, but then working out what problems you solve is important, and working out all of the associated problems around you that relate to your ability to get budget to solve the problem that you solve. Because if you can't bring a collective story together, and actually, frankly, they end up going back to that old school DIY, we'll do it ourselves, we'll work it out, we'll get some developers, we'll build a team, we'll, we'll work it out. Because actually, you only solve your 100th of the problem that we're experiencing here. But if you came with other vested partners who solve other parts of our problems then, and, and other things that we're that are going wrong in our model, that's a real conversation. And maybe we can have you come together as a team and and workshop with us, you know, with all of your different expertise, the bigger problem we're trying to solve and how you collectively working together could help us solve it. But that takes real skill. Well, it does. It takes, you're right, it takes real skill. Uh, it takes real skill to orchestrate you know, a bunch of partners in one place. And, and, and quite often you've got to find the yeah, those people whose you know, ego is retracted a little bit and that, that they, they've come to work to do a job, which is to solve, to your phrase, uh, that you use quite often, wicked problems for customers, right? In their attempts to solve wicked problems for customers, because they're a listening engine, not a speaking engine, they're hearing beyond just what I can sell to you, but really what's going on in your world. And they're already the kind of person that other people like to be connected to anyway, and they're quite comfortable talking to. So they're the kind of people that are quite good at going out and forging these alliances and saying, I keep finding this problem. We can't solve it, but we know you can. How do we work together on that? Great. And there's a partnership, right? But the alliance Absolutely. is, who, what other problems are we seeing that we can't solve? So who do we know? Who do we like? Who do we trust in this space that does a good job in that space, right? And we forge an alliance. It's three people. And before you know it, it's 12 people coming together to solve a bigger problem. 12 people working out how we move in line with the buyer, how we make sure that we keep bringing value at each step of the buyer's um, process. So the end result is they see us as a bigger picture. They have a bigger picture view of who we are and where we fit and where our friends fit in this model. And you know, then, then collectively, everybody wins, starting with the customer, then with the alliance. And, and What's really interesting there is that's playing in the domain of the McKinsey's, the Baines, the Boston's, the Accenture's, and without the cookie cutter, without the 100 grand of student loans, and uh, without uh, the ethos and the business model of write a 1,000-page report at 1,000 pounds a page and have it gather dust. 
you're not hung up on trying to sell, you know, to write something you can sell that nobody ever reads, right? I mean, we're in a different sport here. We're, we're, we're creating an audience of, of experts that are willing to listen to clients' problems and understand you know, both organizationally, but more importantly, individually, what it means to this person to make a decision. It's really interesting. In uh, Bob Mester's fabulous uh, bias journey model, the initial phase is making space. And so you realize that there's something amiss. And so you start making space for things that relate to it. Then you start to look passively. And when you're looking passively, you're looking for solutions. Right. Um, and you attend webinars, you buy audio books, you, um, you know, watch videos, you buy books, whatever. And then you move into this active looking phase where you're looking for ways to solve problems. But by and large, because you're operating in your silo, uh, you don't see the bigger picture. And where I think there is a much higher game to play is in salespeople learning the language of and the world that the CFO and the chief purchasing or procurement officer play in. Because they're seeing all these problems land on their plate because it's either on a a budget request or it's a ticket saying, go and find solutions to this problem. Now, the smart seller and the smart alliance will always be preempting and saying, you'll probably see A, B, C, D, and E happen. When you do, that's the time to call us back. Right. And so you're preceding your pipeline. So you're always right. looking two, three, four <laughs> quarters ahead. And this is where the alliance really works because you're all selling to the same audience with complementary adjacent products and services uh, that don't compete. So you can pick up one fantastic exercise in that alliance is a dead lead swap. Dave, did you manage to solve your problem with X? Uh, No. Went cold. Okay. Look, found somebody who's much better positioned to help you. Actually, they're an adjacent competitor to ours. Let me introduce you. Have a chat. And everyone wins. The the key is that the person who went on the sale and blew it, because let's face it, you're always outsold, they set up that meeting. And you start creating an internal market, Hmm. which means so much less wasted effort on the dead time, which is selling into the cold market. 100%. So hot, like you said, sell ahead. That's yeah, a big thing that we teach, and most of the organizations I'm working with want to sell to larger organizations and sell ahead. We're sowing the seed of problems today while they're aware. I don't suppose this is a problem for you, is my, you know, one of our favorite lines, right? Yeah. Hey, we, we think we spotted this. Are we right? If we think we spotted that. Is that right? Oh, it's not a problem for you. Okay. So, you know, nine conversations later, I'd spend a lot of time now training and then coaching by audience. So, yeah, the world of a CFO, and I'll typically try and bring a CFO that I know from my network along who'll do willing to play along and you know, kind of share, yeah, I think Dave's right on this subject, that subject, this subject. And then the team don't really realize that by the end of the session, they're interviewing this person in a week's time. So I want to train them to get good at interviewing people so that they understand the job that the, the CFO needs to get done. 
and that start to understand you know what their priority stack looks like so that they don't wander in thinking I'm your number one priority when actually you're the eleventh and they only keep a list of ten. But doing that, bringing CEOs to the fore and helping salespeople interview CAOs, have a really good system to go and, and draw out good information from their CEO or other CEOs so they start to understand, they say, to catch a thief, think like a thief. To engage a CFO, you need to think like a CFO and you need to talk in their language. Same with anybody that you're trying to do business with. The more you can understand the world that they live in, their priorities and yeah, the problems and possibilities that they see from where they are, and the easier it is to at least be understanding and have some empathy with them long before you start peddling product. Their unwritten job description is talent spotter. Right. Same thing with procurement if they mm. are strategic, only if they're strategic, and that's right. maybe one in 10. And I know some um, good ones. There, there are some brilliant ones out there, mm. but uh, they have to be ones that play the long game and they're not just about driving down price and being tactical. If you haven't listened to the interview with Mark Schenkius, then make sure you go back and listen to that because he was at procurement in Mars for 15, 16 yeah. years and he's poacher turned gamekeeper. Well, game, gamekeeper turned poacher because now he teaches salespeople how to engage with and sell to and through procurement. And he has this wonderful model, which is if the chairs are blue, the table is blue. If the chairs are red, the table's red. But if any one chair is blue, then the table is blue. It's not purple. Um, <laughs> and blue is tactical and red is strategic. Right. And your job when you're selling to procurement is to position yourself as strategic because then you can command time and airspace and you can command premium and you don't get dicked about. You move, um, from a, move on from a transaction to a, it's a, it's a overly used phrase about you know, customer acquisition, which is forming a partnership because most aren't. Most actually forge a dictatorship one way or the other. It doesn't really matter whether it's the vendor or the customer. Absolutely. And so I don't like the phrase because I think it's just overused and under-understood. I don't like training technique. You know, I don't. I never have. I like training people to understand the people that they do business with, which is, I think, what I've done throughout my career is spend time knowing people. And through knowing people, I know what challenges they're facing. And so when I come up with a bright idea, I tend to buy it. What's also interesting about that is if you teach about people and people are learning about the context in which the people who buy what you're selling will have to live with the decision afterwards right. and who else is affected and why they're doing it. Then the technique comes out quite naturally because it's the obvious question. And this feeds on um, Einstein's fabulous observation that given an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend 95% on the problem right. and only 5% on the solution. Mm -hmm. But as sellers, mm -hmm. there is a tendency to focus on trying to bring solutions. And we have to get out of that habit because that's called rescuing. Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely is called rescuing. You say bring, I, th I, I, I think force solutions. Yeah. Um, I wish they did bring them. That would be easier. Hey, I don't suppose this would fit. I don't suppose this solves a problem. It would be much nicer than the usual, hi, I see you've agreed to a call. Yeah. and uh, pin your eyes back while I work out how to share my screen and go into the same demo I showed 97 people this year and nobody's bought yet. That wallpaper, I can't, does my nothing. 
So why can't you just video it and send it to me? I could have seen it beforehand. Then we could have a nice chat. That'd be handy. Wouldn't it? We're, yeah, we're, we're conversationalists. That's what we get hired for, right? Sales is simply you know, a position of mutuality, somebody who has a problem and somebody who might have a solution. The way I define selling is facilitating buying. Right. And the, again, the perspective by shifting to that side means that all the technique that you use needs to serve that purpose. And unfortunately, I think most people come to the sale with technique as a part of an arsenal. It's weaponry. Well, it's, you can... Salespeople stink and badly trained salespeople stink because all you can see is technique. My, my, look, I take lots of sales calls from lots of salespeople because I like looking at stuff. You never know when it might solve a problem. 99% of them have no idea who I am, what I do, and think I'm a mark. Um, they do. Think, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm going to come and sell to you uh, with no idea really of an, or understanding of what I'm trying to get done or why, why I'm trying to get it done. I was going somewhere, I had a thought, but you know what happens when, you know. Two thoughts that could collide at our yeah, age, that's when kiss of death. Uh, when I remember it at four o'clock, I'll text you in the morning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be up. My bladder will be getting me up by that. <laughs> you, you don't think that's going to be an imposition of a man in my and disposition. I hadn't taken that into account. Trouble is, I'm not a very good one-handed texter. <laughs> Who needs a hand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trouble is the voice thing doesn't work very well for me. Anyway, I'll work on it. We need to start wrapping up. So mm. t- tell me this. Um, in terms of how organizations need... Get, well, but let, let's put this into context. A s- probable spike in interest rates. Mm. Continued supply chain issues. Right. Based on what I've heard, probably another 12 to 18 months of this uh, kerfuffle around COVID Mm. and sporadic localized lockdowns and whatever. That may or may not happen. Who knows? But the efficacy of the uh, vaccines isn't, again, there's a lot of doubt about that. So who knows? And we've then got, if interest rates spike, a lot of technology companies won't be able to sustain their debt. So there's this knock-on effect. So prepare for the worst. Yeah. Let's assume this tsunami hits. Between now and then, what would you suggest founders do in terms of getting their business prepared? Well, know their shit and make sure that they know how to spell that properly because there's two contexts to that. But it depends on the size of your organization. Of course, typically most people look at a recession and forget that it has a massive impact on massive companies and rarely, if ever. To the fleet, faster moving, smart, never waste a good crisis mentality, upstarts. Again, I, I love the concept of upstart. I think it's far yeah. better than startups, right? We're upstarts. Yeah. But if we know, if we know ourselves well enough and we know our audience well enough, and we're clear about our plans and we're clear about where we're heading, and we have the best, we build the best possible people around us, people who are invested in. You know, the success of our organization, who are willing to commit to spending time designing, developing, building proper process and structure. The businesses I've, I've, I've been building since typically, yeah, since 1989 have performed better in crisis 
better when the market was difficult, better when the tech bubble burst, better when inflation was through the roof, best, better when unemployment was through the roof, better when we couldn't travel to the US because of terrorist activity, better for all those things. You know why? Because adversity tends to bring out the best in the best. And prosperity brings out the worst in people, in my opinion. But when you're small and smart, and you've got to be small and smart, you're almost untouchable. And you've got much more control over what you do. And the differences you make to your business, some of the harsh decisions you have to make quickly, are frankly less impactful. It's not catastrophic. It's not chicken little, the sky's falling in. Just be smart. Just be sharp. Without a shadow of a doubt, keep being proactive. And focus on the fundamentals of keeping a good business afloat. Right. Cash flow, profit. Those things actually matter. Your revenues, that matters for valuation purposes. But if you're not keeping the money, then you're not really able to survive. And you've got to keep that funnel full. So keep prospecting months and months out so that when they move from passive to active looking, you're the only show in town. Right. You can see it through. But yeah, never waste a good crisis. I know you and I have banded that phrase around a bit. Absolutely. Crisis creates opportunity. It does. And how you respond is really the measure of your mettle. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you can either buckle down and batten down the hatches and um, you know try and weather the storm, or you can sail through it. And there is risk associated with that, but with the right fundamentals in place and good customer base, and you take care of them, and you're always two, three steps ahead, so you stay relevant, then you're not having to replace customers. So let's finish on the subject of retention. Because I think that's an area that it's becoming popular again, but it's for far too long, it's been overlooked. That's because net retention rate is the mode du jour for investors, right? Especially in the SaaS spaces. What is your net retention rate? Well, they finally worked out that 15% means you have to replace half of your customers every three years. It's a made up number. I can tell you what our NPS is. That's also a made up number that's not reflective of the true story, but. But net retention rate is really important. Hey, look, yeah, most of the organizations I work with, if they're in year zero, we focus on getting clients and then spending 80% of our time on keeping them happy. And then the organizations that have had a couple of years of picking up some clients, but you know, it's not been going brilliantly, we spend 80% of our time working out who they are, what they do, how they do it, how they bought from us, what problems they're trying to solve. Did they see value? Are they seeing value? How do they see more value? What more value can we bring? 80% of our role in life in sales is customer happiness. And of course, that suddenly became a department, which was beyond my understanding. Not that there aren't brilliant people in that space, but how did it become a department? Isn't that everybody's job? Messi's got lost, isn't it? Um, It's everybody's job to keep customers happy. And 80% of our growth revenue year on year comes from our existing client base through their success, them successfully seeing value, and them actually in reality seeing so much value that they can't help but tell people at dinner party, by the way, did I talk to you about those guys? I didn't, did I? Have you talked to You haven't talked to them. You definitely should. They've changed our business. And by the way, my last appraisal went brilliantly because I said I brought these guys on board and my boss went, that's a great idea. You had that idea. Fantastic. It's my favorite question at the moment. When you're, when you're in, a, in a discovery call, just ask, the, ask them off the cuff, when was your last appraisal? And when was your next? Because in a manner of understanding whether you've just been signed up for an RFP that is about making somebody look good for their end-of-year appraisal, seems to me to be a fairly important question to the individual you're sat in front of. 
yeah. your last appraisal, is this subject going to be coming up as part of your next appraisal? Oh, so it's a big enough problem for your boss to want to know that you're solving it. That makes some sense. How That's a lovely it? line of questioning. Well, nobody asked, do they? We all yeah. talk about knowing the individual. Nine times out of 10, somebody's coming to buy from you because they've got an appraisal coming up. And it's a problem that sat on their desk for a few months that somebody had expected them to solve. Hence why most people ring up, I do a lot in the cybersecurity space, and you get a phone call on a Friday going, oh, yeah, brilliantly, we want to spend X amount of money on, on um, pen testing. Yeah, but we need people really, really quickly. Most people that are trying to rush you through a selling process are about to go into appraisal mode. And they're trying to solve problems before their boss finds out. And it's our job to find out whether it's a problem their boss is trying to get them to solve or not. It's a wicked question but it produces some funny results. Like, yeah, why do you ask me that? I'm just curious. All right. It was, uh, it's in two weeks' time. Ah, will this come up in your appraisal? It will. How do we get you ready for that? Okay. The salesman needs to become coach. I think actually that's our job these days. The very, very successful salespeople I know are coaching customers to buy. Yeah. Or not. Not selling anymore. Not peddling at least. It's not a market. Coaching customers to buy and helping them through that process and, and, and the, the consequences of buying. And that's the key. If yeah. you don't understand the context and consequences, then you're going to come up against the status quo and inertia will win. Mm. The magnetism of the status quo is incredibly powerful. So uh, again, building on corporate visions and Stanford's uh, research, you need to turn up and destabilize their current preferences. So they need to see why the intellectual leap between the status quo and that better future is not only going to be attractive and feed their motivation, right. but it's going to be less painful than staying stuck. You've got to be able to create a case so that they can defend it internally. And this is to build on those points about coaching customers how to buy. It's also about coaching them how to sell you internally and build that case so that they can get the support that they need in order to become the hero in their own story. Then you've got to create enough distance between what you're offering, the status quo, and all of the other competing options. So just by turning up and feature benefiting them or talking about your product, ain't going to cut that. Nope. Um, so you've got to be thinking about and literally being their partner. You've got to be selling with them and helping them to facilitate that purchase. Right. So it's the right purchase. It's not just the right one for this point problem. It has ramifications across the rest of the organization that it replaces other stuff. It enables them to drive performance improvement that's measurable and defendable. And then you've got to anticipate future buyer's remorse, regret, blame, uh, judgment, yeah. scrutiny. Hey, here's how you're going to feel for the first 90 months, 90 days of us working together. I have to, I do that all the time. I, it's a habit, I think, now. But here's yeah. how it's going to feel the first 90 days. You're going to be worried about this, this, and this. You're not going to see this as quickly as you want. Other people might be expecting this, but you know, again, it's our job as a coach to, under, to help them understand what the experience is going to be like when they do become a customer and what it is that we're going to do to protect them as we move forward together in business, in partnership, to make sure that they consistently able to communicate eloquently to others, this is where we're at and here's where we're going. This is where we're at and here's where we're going. And they helped us to understand that up front. We've worked all that through with us. 
And it's really important to understand that all of this needs to happen before the demo, before right. the proposal, before mm-hmm. the quote, mm-hmm. before the presentation. Because if you haven't got that, then when they move into first use, that experience will jar. Oh, yeah, because this is new and it didn't work the way I thought it was. and It's not that intuitive and it doesn't work. We're not going to use it. Shelfware. And what's really interesting is the trigger for cancellation is normally the CS call around renewal. Mm. Oh, fuck. I had no idea that we still had that. Let's cancel. It's like a Christmas card that came to your house from a name you don't remember, right? Yeah. It's it just I mean, it's the annual call. Hi, we're just ringing to see if we can take more money from you. I don't, I don't, I'm not not a massive fan of that renewal process. It makes I, I, I we worked out certainly last tech firm I worked at. We'd never have to call them to renew if we just spent our time reinforcing the value, you know, on a consistent basis. Why are we ringing clients up once a year to say, hi, we're about to ship you another invoice is unethical. It's certainly irresponsible. And if you're waiting that long to find out, if you're if that's your approach to working out if somebody wants to stay with you or not, it's fundamentally unprofessional, isn't it? Absolutely. It makes them a forgotten afterthought, an inconvenience, and, an organic ATM. The blood, sweat, tears, exchange of emotional energy, commitment, risk that goes into acquiring a customer only for it to just sit there and, and, and receive invoices from you once a month and a survey every now and again as to smiley, moderately, smiley, slightly angry survey to see if you're you know, any good or not. Because you're constantly posting, our, our MPS score is 29, which is a meaningful number to one person somewhere, but not really to clients because they don't know what the MPS is. What does it mean? And do they care? Because it's selfish. No, they don't care. Because if they're if they're a customer, they want to see value, not your NPS score. That's about you, not about them. Absolutely. And buying Thanks. through. Unfortunately, yeah. we're going to have to wrap up now. <laughs> but this has been incredibly enlightening and packed with value as usual. Thank you. That's How can people get hold of you? Yeah, that's a good question. Easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn, Dave Davies. That's it. There's only a few of us. I stand out like a sore thumb. I wrote a book with another egghead. So, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Dave, thank you. My pleasure, my friend. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please go back, listen to it again with a pad and a pen and take some notes and then tag somebody who'd benefit from it. And if you feel the urge, pop across to Apple Podcasts and leave an honest review one star, three stars, two stars, five stars, whatever. But just give me some feedback. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and how the whole thing can be improved. Speak to you soon. Bye.